Welcome to Houston Sports Talk with your host, Robert Land. Thanks for listening to the best Houston sports podcast. Welcome to our Texans Steelers postgame show. Joining me as co-host and fellow H-Town sports junkie, Stephen Kerr. And Stephen, the Texans started 0-3 a couple of years ago. They still made the playoffs, but this schedule isn't the cakewalk of a schedule that they had a couple of years ago. I'd say Texans playoff hopes are already over and Deshaun looks like a badly overplayed quarterback, unless you like QBs who rack up points against crappy defenses, but not against good ones. I mean, this is bad. Yeah, and you can't expect to go 11-5 and five every time you go 0-3, Robert, you know, just because they did it one time. And as you said, the schedule they have right now is brutal. I mean, in the first two games, you just at least hoped that they could stay in the game. Well, they did stay in the game in this one, but they still lose and put them to 0-3. And I just, I, you know, when I look at the Pittsburgh running backs, when, when I look at their running game, I not only see an offensive line that can block the run, but I see three running backs who can complement each other very well. You know, you, you've got Schuster and Snell as your power guys, and then you've got the rookie McFarland. His first name escapes me, but, you know, he, he's kind of your finesse guy. The Texans just don't have that. And, and, yeah, we can put a lot of this on Deshaun in the offensive line. You know, but the Texans' running game is clearly not there. And that is, I think, a lot of the reason that you're putting their defense on the field too much. Yeah, I mean, that's that's a big problem. Uh, you got no running game from the Texans. I mean, just zero running game in this one. Did they even get 30 yards the whole game? They had 29 at, on 15 carries at the end of three quarters. David Johnson, 13 carries, 23 yards. You're, you're exactly right. 15 carries, 29 yards total. Uh, this is your weekly reminder that David Johnson was the major part of the deal for DeAndre Hopkins, the best wide receiver in the NFL, just a FYI. Meanwhile, Steelers, 38 carries, 169 yards. Much worse than that because the last three carries were kneel downs to end the game. Even with all that, they average 4.4 yards per carry, Stephen. It's terrible. Yeah, it's terrible. And the ironic thing is, yeah, you trade a receiver for a running back who seems to be more of a receiver than a running back. I mean, Johnson, you know, he made some good plays coming out of the backfield and catching the ball, but you can't you can't put him in there to do that all the time. You've got to have him running the ball. And, of course, Duke Johnson being out, I know that hasn't helped, but the, the Texans just clearly, you know, again – we could put some of this on the run blocking of the offensive line, but they clearly do not have anybody that can run the ball effectively, whether David Johnson is a decent back or not. They don't even have anybody behind him to help him. Yeah, Duke Johnson out with the injury. They they pulled some guy off the scrap heap, uh, Procyce or something like whatever. He was a third-round pick four years Crosites, ago. Yeah, Crosites, he had one carry, I believe, for a yard. Yeah, I was – not good. One you know, one carry for one yard for ProSize, CJ ProSize. Third round pick for the Seahawks about four years ago, but basically a journeyman junk pile guy. And and as far as the shot goes, it's not about the offensive line. He was sacked four times. And, and I'm going to explain as we move along how only one of those was the fault of the O-line or blocking. I mean, he looks good at times. He looked good at certain drives, but... I mean, look at it, Stephen. It was just a lot of three and outs. I mean, they had their three really good drives. After halftime, it was three and out, three and out. Then Deshaun throws that interception on the third and 15, the scramble, which basically scrambling from pressure that really wasn't there. He just started scrambling for no reason. And then three and out in that last drive. Now, that was the one that was 
offensive line fault uh, on the sack because Titus Howard right. just badly beaten by T.J. Watt. But right, right. even in the first half, yeah, they had the three drives where they had touchdowns, but the other three drives were three and out, three and out, and three and out. Well, that is the thing that is so frustrating about Deshaun to me, though, Robert, is that there are times that, yes, he does make the plays. He, he makes the plays that a quarterback is supposed to make. Uh, on the touchdown, the first touchdown pass to Cobb, if, if I recall, I think Titus Howard was actually pushed into him, and he still made the play. You know, But, but then on the interception, it's like he's trying to make a, a play, throwing into tight coverage, and then on most of the sacks— when he should have thrown the ball away, he's still trying to make a play and getting sacked. So you're absolutely right. A lot of this is on Watson. It, it's like he he shows flashes that he can get the ball out fast, but then he just goes back to too many times where he's trying to make a play and it ends up backfiring. And in this case, it definitely cost the Texans the game. Yeah, if you go through those first few drives in the first half, well, the first uh, just six drives, all of them in the first half, Three and out, uh, Deshaun missed Jordan Akins on a third and five. I don't think Akins was even open. So that was, you know, that was just a misplay by Deshaun. I don't know if anybody was open, but, you know, he he missed Akins nonetheless. You know, then he has the really good drive, gets it to Randall Cobb for a 28-yard touchdown. The overpaid slot receiver makes it seven to three. And then Deshaun sacked with poor blocking by David Johnson, the running back on first down, which th- that stopped the drive, but... That was one where Deshaun saw the guy coming straight at him. You've got your running back blocking. You got to get rid of the ball right there. And then in the fifth drive, he sacked again when he held holds onto the ball too long, and it's another three and out. I mean, it's just this is this is the story of Deshaun's career at this point. Well, and also getting back to the interception, I believe that play was supposed to be to Stills, and it looked like Stills pulled up when he. I, I think Deshaun was wanting him to run further, and he throws the ball to where he thinks Stills is going to be. And then uh, I believe it was Hilton who made the interception. So, you know, uh, some of that may have been on Stills. I don't know. But either way, just too many plays that Deshaun made or didn't make that you just have to call into question. The other sack that uh, of the four sacks was second drive, second half. It was Zach Fulton and Nick Martin who just looked terrible on a third down sack. I, I don't know what. Bill O'Brien sees in these guys, Zach Fulton specifically, but Fulton whips on his guy. And then this was more Nick Martin, frankly, because he goes to help out nobody on the left side. who do- Nobody needs help on the left side instead of helping Fulton, who was getting beat. So he just kind of moved. He sees the guy in front of him. He sees that Fulton is, I mean, I don't know how you don't see it if you, unless you literally have no peripheral vision. He, he, he sees the guy that Fulton has missed that's running around Zach Fulton and Nick Martin, instead of moving his feet to the right and helping out Zach Fulton, he immediately goes left and there's nobody to block on the left side because they're all over being blocked by, you know, the other two guys. So it's just, that was terrible. But again, it was Deshaun seeing the guy coming up the middle where you can just get rid of the ball, you know, quit trying to make the spectacular play and sometimes just throw the ball away. I mean, that's, Throw the ball away. Live to fight another day. You can't get out of everyone. This isn't college football anymore. Deshaun, you should know this. this is the fourth year in the league. You can't just take a sack. Well, Robert, apparently Deshaun does not listen to our podcast uh, because clearly we – how many times have we pointed this out over the last two or three years is that this is just an ongoing problem, and I can't believe that the coaches aren't pointing it out to him. I, I just don't know if it's 
just something, you know, there, there are times that people ask you to do things and you try, but you just can't do it for whatever reason. It just doesn't get in your head and stick there. I don't know, but it, it's frustrating. And week after week, you know, we, we talk about this, that the Texans, you know, while they may not have DeAndre Hopkins anymore, they, you know, that's obviously a big problem. But some of this is just the thinking of Deshaun Watson, who has other receivers to throw to. You know, he's got a good tight end in Aikens that, had, you know, played well again today, made some good catches. But it's, it's you know, the quarterback, just like a pitcher, it's a thinking man's game. And the mental part of it is just what I, I don't see that Deshaun has that down to a science. Once you get sacked, Stephen, the drive's over with in the NFL. That's yeah, it. it. It is a drive killer. It absolutely is a drive killer, just as much as turnovers. Looking at the defense, uh, well, I mean, they they gave up, what, how many points did they give up in this one? 20, it, it they gave been, up 28. Could have been more. Could have been more. Could have been. Could have been. Just like the offense was all or nothing, the defense was pretty much all or nothing. It was, you know, first drive, 11 play, 63-yard field goal. Second drive, three and out. Third drive, three and out. By the way, Amenahu on the second drive with a sack on a good stunt play, Merciless actually was involved for once in, in that one. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, fourth drive, 12-play, 75-yard drive. Uh, touchdown, Eric Ebron. Guess what? That guy used to kill us with the Colts, and the tight ends always kill us, and he's still killing us. Uh, fifth drive, seven-play, 63-yard drive. Juju Smith-Schuster busted coverage. I'm going to get back to that. Just kind of a walk-in touchdown. That was towards the end of the half. Then on the sixth drive, another 11-play, 62-yard drive. You're seeing a pattern here. It's either long drive or it's three and out. They get a field goal uh, on that one. Now, there was a questionable penalty on fourth down. Bradley Roby's pass interference. Not so sure about that. Looked like the receiver just changed his route at the last second, ran into Roby and fell down. So you could argue that maybe they, they could have and should have stopped him from getting three points in that drive. But... You know, next two drives, three and out. Uh, Carlos Watkins with a rare sack, which was nice on one of those drives, which is the the, the stopper there. But that last drive, uh, 12 plays, before the last drive before they killed the clock, uh, 12 plays, 79 yards, James Conner, 12-yard touchdown run. So, Stephen, it was all or nothing the entire game. All or nothing. Just like the offense, the defense, it's all or nothing. Yeah, and the Texans secondary clearly just is, still is not a match for most teams. I just haven't seen much improvement there. But here are a couple other things, I think, to point out. And One, we kind of referred to it earlier, is with the Texans offense having so many three and outs, and not just in this game, but against Baltimore and against Kansas City, the defense is spending way too much time on the field. And as the Steelers get on the field – the Ravens and the Chiefs get on the field and just eat the clock, eat the clock, eat the clock. And and the Texans defense is spending so much time on the field. But here's the other thing, Robert, that, that I think really makes this stand out of why the Texans defense isn't a great defense. They do not make the big play. I'm talking about the interception that brought the Steelers back in and had them take the lead. I'm talking about recovering a fumble. I don't know. I can't think of one. And maybe you have the stat in front of you. Do they even have a turnover in the first three games, Robert? No. <laughs> I didn't think so. No, I, I, I couldn't think of a single instance where they have made a fumble recovery, an interception. You know, they, they've made some big three and outs in this game. But the turnover ratio is just, you know, at, at least on the defensive end, they're not making the big plays. And, and that's what turns a ball game around as much as, you know, you're talking about sacks, a drive killer. Not only are the Texans not getting enough sacks, but 
turnovers are drive killers and game changers, and they have zero to show for it this year. Do you remember them even dropping an interception? I think they've, they've come close on a couple, I think, in the Chiefs and the Ravens game, but not many. I mean, I, I think that's your point. is definitely not enough. And I can't remember a fumble that I was like, oh, if the Texans got that one, was it was the ball? Has a ball been on the ground for the Texans to get even so far? Yeah, I, I sure can't think of one. I mean, and then the Texans have had some big fumbles like the QT fumble last week in the Ravens game. But they're not getting those plays on defense. And that is really what is stifling the defense just as much as the play itself. I was happy for moments of them getting the ball down the field at times in this game. Uh, the big first drive that they had, it felt like they, they had hit some long passes during that drive, you know, some big 15, 20, 25 yard plays, that kind of thing. But what I'm not seeing at all, you got Will Fuller on your team. Uh, you need to throw the ball deep to him at least once a game, if not more, right? Yeah, I think so. And I almost wonder, you know, they even had him on one punt return, which I was a little surprised about. And it kind of worried me. And in fact, I, I think I put in my notes that, you know, are they going to try to give him double duty with just the, his high risk of injury? You know, are you going to flame him out? I don't know. Maybe they're just too afraid to, to run him down the field too many times or am I pulling another hamstring? But either way, though, you're right. I mean, he was effective when he was in there. He, he clearly can be the game changer if he can just stay healthy, but he's just not getting the targets. You know, last week he was a little, you know, they were stretching out his hamstring. So he wasn't getting the targets at all. He was getting them today, but as you mentioned, not enough downfield to where he could really turn the offense into something that could explode and change the game. I mean, he's getting that punt return action. You have to figure that, you know, he went out with the hamstring last week, didn't play the entire game because of it. I'm like, okay, well, we just back to same old Will Fuller hamstring injury. But if they're doing that, Steven, there's no way the hamstring's bothering him, right? Well, you would think, and I, I think they only did it one time, though, didn't they? I, I don't remember seeing him more than that one time in the first half. But it just clearly, I, I think you're dancing on thin ice, though, if you're trying to make him a punt returner and a receiver just with his history. Yeah, I want to go back to Will Fuller in just a second. But De DeAndre Carter, is he the least electrifying return guy in the NFL? Why is he on the team? <laughs> Because they have nobody else. That that's the pure and simple. And and that I think is one of the reasons they were trying Fuller at the punt return. They they just they have no return game. And DeAndre Carter is your guy. And that's there's just nobody else that they've had. I mean, when was the last time you? Who is the last person you can think of that was a decent returner? J.J. Moses. I mean, I don't know. It's been a few years since they've even had a decent guy on the return game. Uh, Jacoby Jones was pretty good at, at times. At times, he showed flashes, yeah. He was, maybe he's the closest, but he's certainly uh, he was better with Baltimore than he was with the Texans. Yeah, the fumble machine, Trendon Holiday, was good when he yeah. actually caught it. <laughs> yeah, when he caught it. And, and DeAndre Carter has had some moments where you've about had a heart attack because he's fumbled or almost fumbled a kick. Yeah, back to Will Fuller. I, I do want to say one thing because Fuller has that touchdown pass. Great catch. or I mean, touchdown catch, great catch. And then... Uh, that drive, you know, great throw by Deshaun on that on that touchdown too, but great drive. We got to talk about that drive. They used their timeout, Stephen. It was an improvement by leaps and bounds for Bill O'Brien and Deshaun Watson to look like they knew what they were doing in a two-minute drive. 50-second drive, five plays, 75 yards, and they handled the clock right. Well, and you know what? Here's another thing to point out is you remember the delay of game they got on the punt? 
in the first half where they could have used a timeout. They didn't. Yeah, they had the delay of game, but all it did is just pin anger, you know, further back. But it saved them a timeout that they could use later. So that might have actually worked out in their favor in that regard. So, okay, where are we? Is there anything else that we need to talk? I mean, I'm going to go back to, you know, I said I was going to go back to that busted coverage at the end of the first half. And I guess my last point for the Texans is just that you look at a play like that and you look at what the Texans have done on the defensive side so far, and I get it. You know, there's a a definite lack of talent on on the Texan side, I think. But so much of defenses in the history of the NFL have been about the coordinators more than any other side of the football. It's about guys that scheme right, they do things correctly. And I looked at that play and I just thought, you know, this is this is a continuous problem with the Texans that look like they don't know where they should be. They're not making plays. They're not causing turnovers. They're not doing what they should do. And I just go back to the point, Stephen, of, you know, quit being incestuous and hiring coordinators that are in your own building. Go outside the building. Anthony Weaver, if he was a genius, he would have done something last year. Yeah, that is an interesting point, is that they they seem to look to their own. And, you know, it's great to hire from within. Every employee loves to work for a company that hires from within. It's the outsiders they can't get in. But, yeah, they I think they just need to broaden the net. And you could, you know, you, you could kind of say that about offensive coordinator. They do the same thing. And, you know, in three games, you've got both your new coordinators that really haven't shown us a lot. I mean, Tim Kelly, you know, how much of an influence is Bill O'Brien on him, though? You know, you still wonder how much does Bill O'Brien have his fingers in that pie? And Anthony Weaver, yeah, young coordinator and everything. You got to give him some time. But in the NFL, there is no time. There's 16 games. You, you've got to have it figured out soon. And right now, the Texans defense just don't have it figured out. And like we said, the season pretty much over with because you're 0-3, your next four games – Look, it doesn't get super easy from here. It's Vikings, Jags, Titans, and Packers. And I get it. The Vikings, they're struggling. They're 0-3. But they're still a a decent team. They've played some good teams so far. They got beat by the Titans on Sunday. The Jags, you know, they're they're scrappier than we thought they would be. So I don't think that's a gimme, gimme, gimme. And and then you've got the Titans and the Packers, and you're not going to be favored in either one of those two games. (laughs) No, you're certainly not. But... You know, even the Texans, you know, last year clearly struggled with some of the lesser teams. So even the Vikings game, you know, the Vikings struggled. They 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 had Tennessee down and couldn't hold them. You know, so they're not going to be easy regardless. But it almost makes you wonder who can the Texans beat? They even have trouble with the Jaguars. So, you know, where is there an easy game on the Texans schedule right now? Even the weaker teams, I wouldn't call an easy game. The The way the team has played these first three games and the only other point I really had to make, Robert, is the Watt factor. And we're not talking about J.J. Watt. We're talking about T.J. He clearly, of the three Watt guys who played today, T.J. was clearly above and beyond with the Steelers. Yeah, no question about that. I'm going to ask you something. Bernardrick McKinney made eight solo tackles, 11 tackles altogether. But I'm going to ask you this. Is Bernardrick McKinney worth keeping next year for the money that you're paying him? I mean, he's not somebody that you can't cut. I mean, he doesn't have one of these big cap holds next year. 
And it seems like you could just replace them with a third or fourth round pick. Well, and that's probably what's going to happen. You know, the Texans just, the, the, like we've talked about so many times, a lot of the big contracts they've signed, and then they've let guys walk away that they probably should have kept, especially on the defensive side. But yeah, as far as Bernardrick McKinney, he's, I don't know, he just to me, he's one of those hot and cold players that can make some plays where you kind of go, eh, that's pretty good. But then he just doesn't, where he do, he doesn't show a lot of the time. So, yeah, mid-round pick, that's about what you're going to expect. Uh, so you could probably replace him with somebody in the middle rounds or a, a fringe free agent, perhaps, for Bernardrick McKinney. J.J. Watt is still signed next year, but that money's got to go down. You can't be paying J.J. Watt a ton of money anymore. Uh, he is not the impact player that he used to be by a long shot. Uh, just had four four tackles, one solo tackle, no sacks. I didn't really see him pressuring the quarterback at all. Uh, Whitney Merciless. I mean, we can go over this every week, but, you know, congratulations on your one tackle for loss. He had the one <laughs> semi, you know, rush, you know, sort of helping out Amenahu on that one sack. Uh, but, I mean, Whitney Merciless, you know, big deal, four tackles, two solo, whatever. Well, the key is consistency, Robert, and he just hasn't had that. Bernardrick McKinney hasn't had that. J.J. Watt hasn't had it. You know, showing flashes, it, it doesn't get the job done. You, you've got to be, you know, the great players are consistent from, you know, for a full 60 minutes. And and that's just the, the Texans defense. They don't have that kind of player anymore. J.J. Watt was before the injuries and, you know, before age is setting in. But they just don't have it. And, and that's, I think, another reason that you're just seeing them Falling down on so many occasions, not just with the pass rush, but in the secondary. And it's just they, they don't have the players who consistently make the good plays or the big plays that can snatch a drive away or turn a game around. Worst Houston contract, Whitney Merciless or Carlos Lee? Mm, there's a good question. I mean, Carlos Lee, he had some good seasons with the Astros. And he, you know, he could hit for power when you needed him to. Uh, very overpriced. Yes. Um, you know what? I'll, I'm going to give it to Merciless. I, I'm giving that to Merciless at this point. Yeah. The only thing Carlos Lee, uh, had in his favor was he was getting Carlos Beltran money, which Whitney Merciless, <laughs> I don't think is getting like, yeah. uh, uh, all-star all, all pro linebacker money. <laughs> he was paid to hit home runs and nothing else. Cause he wasn't a great fielder and you know, but yeah, I just think Whitney Merciless though. For, for the importance that he needs to be, especially now, I, I'll give him the narrow edge on that one. So in less than 24 hours, we're going to throw up our Astros playoff preview podcast. So keep an eye out for that on Monday. I noticed a lot more people last week uh, had downloaded our Astros podcast than the Texans went on Sunday. So, you know, keep keep an eye out. If you're not checking every Sunday, we're going to be, you know, going uh, at you with uh, our Sunday podcast after the Texans game. So don't forget about it. Um, hopefully uh, you'll check out the Astros one as well tomorrow. Uh, I've got one last thing that's NFL related uh, before we go. This week, we lost one of the icons of the sport. And even though I didn't grow up a Bears fan, it was impossible not to be in awe of Gale Sayers if you watch just a couple of minutes of his highlights. Even today, it's incredible to watch him. He's magnificent and artistic and just poetry in motion. He only played for 68 games, which today would be a little over four seasons but in his fourth season, he had that devastating knee injury, which robbed us and him of his electric ability. 
he left an indelible mark in a short amount of time. In his rookie season, he scored 22 touchdowns, including six Mm. in one game. Before his injury, he averaged 5.3 yards per carry. At age 34, he's the youngest person to be inducted into the Hall of Fame. And Stephen, as a Mizzou grad, there's not many Kansas grads I'm going to heap this much praise on. (laughs) No, I bet not, Robert. That's kind of like, you know, a former Texas Longhorn great, you know, and a a Texas A&M alum, you know, grudgingly saying what a great player that guy was. But you have to say that about Gale Sayers because, honestly— I mean, four years, it, it, you know, you, you kind of wonder, would a guy playing four years today be able to make the Hall of Fame, even with the kind of impact that a Gale Sayers had? But he clearly, and, and one of the things that I don't like about, I, I wish current players, or not just players, but fans, really, would be more into the history of the game, because that's when you can appreciate players like Gale Sayers, who just think what he could have done if he had gone you know, even three or four more years. I mean, the the average running back doesn't play very long in the league anyway. I get that, but boy, what a what an impact the Sayers had. And of course, the movie Brian's song, he's famous for that. So, just a lot of reasons that Gale Sayers had an impact on the NFL during his time and even after his time. I know Walter Payton talked a lot about him over the years when he played. That that Gale was a big influence on him. Right. And and you talk about guys that make it in that short of a time. You had a Terrell Davis, but he had two Super Bowl championships. I mean, Gail Sayers did this without Super Bowl rings to help him out. And of course, Sayers, not just a hero to me and others, but, you know, he he it wasn't just because of his play on the field that we, he was a hero. He was his play on the field. But also, as you mentioned, um, Sayers and Bears running back Brian Piccolo became the first interracial roommates in NFL history is portrayed in the just incredibly heartbreaking 1971 made for TV movie, Brian's song, which depicted their friendship. And if you go back to episode 240 of our podcast, Greg Lucas and I go over the top 10 sports movies of all time. You can hear me gushing even more about that movie. And Steven, I, I just think besides Lou Gehrig's biopic pride of the Yankees, there isn't a fictional sports movie that raised a player's status as a hero more than Brian Sog did for Gail Sayers and Brian Piccolo. Well, I, I can't argue with that, Robert. And, you know, again, it just goes beyond what guys like Gail Sayers did on the field. It's the impact that they make off the field that I, that I really think is even more important than their contributions on the playing field is, you know, what do you do for your fellow man? And are you an inspiration to other people by the way you carry yourself, you know, the, the class act that you are, or just, you know, the bonds that you form with people, you know, that's that's what it was about, was the bond that Gail Sayers and Brian Piccolo had for each other. You just you don't see it in a lot of a lot of people, but it's there. But, it the, you know, the Brian song movie certainly brought that out. And even to the point where people still talk about it today. I mean, that was what, 50 years ago. But we still talk about it today. That shows you right there the impact that Gail Sayers had on Brian Piccolo. And I'll tell you, uh, how much do I love Sayers and Piccolo? Just recently, Stephen, I, I bought a couple of shirts that I made using a pretty famous company who I won't mention until they start sponsoring the show, but one shirt <laughs> uh, has the front of a Gail Sayers football card on it with the back of the card on the back, and the other has a Piccolo football card. You know, these guys are are some guys that I think about even today, and, and you know, that friendship and 
just uh, it, it's one of those really special things. And that friendship, when you think about it, Stephen, I mean, it's it's very relevant today, isn't it, with what's going on? It's very relevant. Well, it's interesting because I, I was going to point out the the first interracial roommates thing. And I mean, that's it's it's definitely going hand in hand with the times that we're in today. And that's why, you know, that really jumped out at me. I had forgotten about that. When I saw it, that's the first thing that popped into my head is that it does show you that people can get along in different cultures, in different races. There there doesn't have to be this gap, this chasm that seems to still be there decades and decades later. And Gail Sayers and Brian Piccolo proved that. And and your T-shirt collection, by the way, Robert, it's almost becoming a weekly thing when you and I talk off the air about what T-shirts you're collecting. I'm almost looking forward to which T-shirts you're getting from week to week more than I am the Texans postgame podcast. Just because – or the, the way the, the Texans games, I should say. It, it's pretty intriguing. <laughs> That's a low bar, though. <laughs> uh, I wasn't meaning it to be, but I'm just saying. I mean, this is pretty fascinating, some of the, the T-shirts you're collecting these days. Maybe we need to get these guys to sponsor the show. As much money as you're putting into them. Hey, I mean, come on. That's true. Let's do it. Um, hey, I, I want to end by reading a piece from the New York Post, Mike Vaccaro. He wrote it just four months ago on the 50th anniversary of the night Gail Sears received his Comeback Player of the Year award. Here's what Vaccaro wrote. He said, by the time the last award was given, the crowd was weary and some were eager to be the hasty escape for the exits. Out of respect, they lingered because the guest of honor was someone they all liked a great deal. Gail Sayers, running back of the Chicago Bears. On November 10th, 1968, Sayers had completely blown out his right knee. Most believe Sayers would never play again. Yet in 1969, against all reasonable odds, the Kansas Comet had not only returned to the Bears, he played in all 14 games and somehow led the league in rushing for an awful team that went 1-13. and 13. He was the writer's unanimous pick to win the George S. Hallis Most Courageous Player Trophy. Normally, that award was presented in late August at the Hallis Dinner, but Sayers had requested his presentation be moved up. Few asked why. Many assumed he wanted to be able to focus on training camp. They'd soon learn why. Sayers was called to the dais, and there was a round of respectful applause. Many of the men in the room had interviewed Sayers before. They knew he was a man of few words. Most started reaching for their top coats as Sayers thanked his teammates and Hallis and his doctors. Quietly, a barely audible Sayers said, It is something special to do a job many say can't be done. Maybe that's how courage is spelled out, at least in my case. Then there was some polite clapping, typical Sayers, quick, humble, bland, unmemorable. But I'd like to tell you about my friend Brian Piccolo, Sayers said. This was unexpected. Piccolo? He was an unremarkable running back who'd partnered in Sayers' backfield as a mostly forgettable blocking back. He'd filled in ably when Sayers had been hurt in 1968, but he wasn't a name most in the room were terribly familiar with. Sayers continued, in the middle of last season, Brian was struck down by the deadliest, most shocking enemy any of us can ever face, cancer. Compare his courage with the kind I'm supposed to possess. There was never any doubt that I'd return, knee injury or no, but think of Brian and his fortitude in the months since last November, in and out of hospitals, hoping to play football again, 
but not too sure at any time what the score was or might be. He has the heart of a giant. He has the mental attitude that makes me proud to have a friend who spells out the word courage 24 hours a day, every day of his life. Sarah's paused. 600 men in tuxedos sat in silence, glassy-eyed, numb. Then somehow, Gail Sayers summoned the strength to finish his speech with this. You flatter me by giving me this award, but I tell you here and now that I accept it for Brian Piccolo. Brian Piccolo is the man of courage who should receive the George S. Hallis Award. It is mine tonight. It is Brian Piccolo's tomorrow. I love Brian Piccolo. And I'd like all of you to love him, too. And tonight, when you hit your knees, please ask God to love him. Fifty years ago, 600 men waited a beat, then jumped to their feet, filling the room and the hotel with a roar most could still feel in the ears years later. Brian Piccolo died 22 days later at the age of 26, a few blocks away at what is now called Memorial Sloan Catering Cancer Center. On November 30th, 1971, Brian's song, starring James Conn and Billy D. Williams, premiered on ABC. It was the most watched made-for-TV movie in history. It remains one of the greatest sports movies ever made. And it is impossible to watch even now without feeling much the same way those 600 men in tuxedos felt when it was born at the Americana Hotel on May 25th, 1970. A man asking you to love his friend as he did. You're listening to Houston Sports Talk. Don't forget to follow Houston Sports Talk on Facebook and Twitter. Subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, the Google Podcast app, or the Stitcher app. You can support us by giving us a five-star review on iTunes or by telling your friends about us. Spread the word, everybody. Thanks for listening.